Hello, welcome once again to The Garden Podcast. I'm Chris Young, editor of The Garden Magazine, our monthly magazine for RHS members. This podcast focuses on the issues behind the stories that we feature. It's a chance for me to debate current gardening issues with some of the world-class experts who contribute to our pages. These include horticulturists, scientists, designers, specialist growers and horticultural innovators. All gardening life, as they say, is here. First today, garden design, or rather redesigning. January is a classic time for people to rethink and replan their gardens. Rachel Detame, whom many will know from Gardener's World Television, has written a thought-provoking piece in our magazine about the importance of creating a garden that you like. A garden that suits your needs and your tastes, rather than matching current trends or fads. Earlier this week, I spoke to her about her insightful approach to making a beautiful garden. Rachel, you are one of our new columnists who will be writing occasionally for us. It's great that for many people who've seen you on Gardener's World, you'll be sharing some of your more personal observations in the Garden magazine. This column will look at lessons and ideas you've taken from gardens that you've visited, and I'm sure you've visited so many over the years. So what is it about visiting gardens that you so enjoy? Oh, goodness, I've been visiting gardens um, ever since I can remember. It's something that my parents did with us on a Sunday. We got in the car <laughs> and we would we were taken off to somewhere or other. Um, Reluctantly and, or happily? Yes, happily. I don't okay. remember, I mean, other than feeling carsick in the car, I don't remember ever having a problem with actually being in the garden. And I loved it even more if there was a stately home or somewhere to walk round. It was the combination of the two, because I'm quite a history geek and I enjoy all of that and looking at art and antiques and so on. And really, as a quite a young child, I'm, I've never had that feeling of, oh, God, when can we go? And no, I've always loved it. So perhaps an odd child, I think. <laughs> but it's grown into a uh, very wise adult, obviously, who appreciates visiting gardens. In your column, you encourage us to ensure our gardens are giving us what we really want. What for you makes a great garden and why? Oh, I think it's that elusive thing, isn't it? That you know the minute you see it, but can be quite hard to achieve. I think it's a combination of things. It's when everything just falls into place. And sometimes it does that almost for a fleeting moment and you feel everything's just come together beautifully. But it has to be, I think, when a garden is fairly simple. I think often when things are very overcomplicated and they try too hard that I feel it goes over. It's almost like a painting that's been overworked. And also somewhere that I think captures the sense of the place that it's in, that doesn't try to be somewhere else. And has the character of the person that makes the garden as well, that's very personal. But it's such a difficult thing to put your finger on. When it works, it's just magic. Absolutely. In the series, you'll be uh, looking at some of the key features like herbaceous borders or pergolas or small garden trees and talk about why they work and how to make them work even better in your garden. Are there some key elements for you that are essential for good garden structure? Well, I think, first of all, the structure is often overlooked. And so, I mean, certainly for me as a novice gardener, it was all about the plants. 
And I really didn't give much thought at all to the hard landscaping and things that surrounded it. I'm now feeling much more appreciative of those sort of elements when I look around gardens because they can often, you know, contribute to a garden working and or not. And I think certainly getting the boundaries right is quite a big thing whether they are the external boundaries around the whole thing or things that divide up the space. And it's how you do that that's really, really key. And also perhaps not using too many different materials. That's something I see happening a lot and it jars. You know, you've got red brick and you've got stone and you've got metal and you've got all sorts of things going on. It's like getting dressed and being told to take off one thing. It's <laughs> it's that sort of thinking, just sometimes just lose something and it just feels better. What I love in your comment piece this month is the ending, really. You say, time is short. Spend it with plants you respond to in a garden you've truly made your own. And you also talk about that moment of clarity that I'm sure so many of us have had when you've been away or you've visited a garden. You come home and you think, I know what to do now. This is what I need to do. How do you encourage us all and maybe yourself to act on that moment of clarity or reflection? Mm. It is extraordinary, that feeling, isn't it? That Mm. little bit of separation and you come back and think, that hedge has got to go. It's wrong. The thing is then acting on those moments of clarity. And I find now that I write myself notes. So I'll do a message on my phone and send it to myself to remember to do it and taking photographs as well. The other thing that I've got better at doing is moving something when probably horticulturally you oughtn't, but you sometimes have to. So i just a little more brave about taking the initiative or perhaps putting something in a pot temporarily while I think about where it's going to go because I've had that inspiration and just want to act on it. And nine times out of ten, I find it's fine. So tell me, somebody like you, who many of us will have known from telly or, or met or read um, in articles, do you seek opinions from friends or visitors or are you quite private about it and, and you know what you want to do and that's fine? Or, or do you welcome sort of that debate? I think certainly I welcome the debate. When I'm visiting someone else's garden, I want to know everything about it, their thinking and why they chose that and what they would do differently and how that worked. And and I love it when people come to my garden and they've got all sorts of ideas and suggestions. But I think then I will sort of filter all of that and take from it probably what I wanted to do in the first place. It's sort of, I think I've got fairly strong ideas about how I, I imagine it to look. And at the moment, in fact, I'm sort of, my husband and I are sort of having a a slight disagreement about how the restoration of a wall garden, because there's a, a small wall garden here that I want to make into a really productive space. And and he's the cook in our family. So he has very strong ideas about what we should grow. And I've got other feelings. So it's sort of taking that from somebody else and being open to that conversation, but then making the garden that makes you and ideally your partner happy as well. <laughs> we'll get there. You will. A heated mm. debate, as they used to call it. Yeah. So look, we, we We've, you know, really excited about having you in the Garden Magazine. You've written a few articles for us over the years, which we've really enjoyed. And now that you're coming on to be one of the columnists, which is great, what are you hoping to achieve by doing this column? Well, first of all, I'm extremely excited about it too. I've got piles of the Garden Magazine all over the place. And my, my husband, who's tidy, <laughs> asking me if he can chuck this one out. And I'm, no, don't touch anything there. So for me, it's wonderful to be part of the magazine what am I trying to achieve by it I think I think it's just sharing again it's just 
gardeners are extremely generous, almost to a fault, not only with plants and so on and their help and expertise. And I found that very, very much recently and been very grateful for it. But with ideas and their thoughts and so on, and most of us are extremely open to that. Most of us would acknowledge that it's a continual learning process. And the more you learn, the more you realise actually there's so much more to do. So I'm hoping just to have that sort of exchange of ideas and that some of the thoughts that I take away from the gardens that I'm visiting will inspire someone else perhaps to try something different. And really, that's all. It may sound a bit humble, but it's not. And we're really pleased to have you. And we're looking forward to learning from you and reading what you have to say. So, Rachel, many thanks indeed. Thank you, Chris. You can read Rachel's fascinating piece in February's issue of The Garden. If you're an RHS member, you'll know that the magazine is delivered for free to your door each month. And if you're not a member, then may I ask why not? Unlimited, free entry to not four, but five gardens, because from the 30th of July we'll be opening RHS Garden Bridgewater in Manchester, along with priority booking and discounted entries to RHS events. There's so much to RHS membership. You can find links to more info on our programme page at rhs.org.uk forward slash the garden podcast. Now back in the office. As editor, I'm currently approving those last few pages of the February issue. And there's quite a lot in this issue, I must say. I've got an interview with Rosemary Alexander, and many people might know of her from the English Gardening School. And I visited her Hampshire garden. And it's great to see a designer's garden in winter, because you get to see the principles of garden design laid bare. And it's a really interesting walk around to her garden, understanding Rosemary's history, where she's come from as a designer, but also seeing what she's put into practice in her garden. We've also got a Latvian crocus breeder, probably um, not that well known, but actually well known to us because we love crocuses and there's such a diversity in flower colour. And this is an interview with him that just shows the passion that so many of these nursery men and women have about the subject that is particular to their heart. And talking of people who love all sorts of plants, Roy Lancaster, who has um, been in every issue of the Garden magazine for more years than I could care to remember, he carries on with his series all about looking at plants from his window. So actually you're sitting in your house, what plants can you see? What's in flower? What trees are looking good? What's the season doing to the flowers? And he's got this um, regular series with us all about views from his windows, whether it's dining room, kitchen or bedroom. We've got a small piece all about practical advice on establishing bare root perennials, really becoming in vogue now with people trying to reduce their use of plastic pots. And we've also got a gorgeous picture set of some sculptures at a place called Neville Holt Opera in Northamptonshire. And this is not only a beautiful opera place, but also it's got a gorgeous garden surrounding uh, this incredibly old building, uh, but also some of the most contemporary modern sculpture in the UK. It's a real treat. Next, talking of treats, a treat for galanthophiles. This month's issue contains a celebration in both words and images of that much-loved winter bloom, the snowdrop. Writer, gardener and ex-director general of the RHS, Gordon Ray, tells us why he thinks they have such enduring appeal. Snowdrops are the harbingers of spring. Every year, even in the darkest days of winter they just come up and they flower the 
way that I actually got started, I suppose, was by accident. And it was talking to um, a fishing colleague of mine. He was a retired doctor, and he had an old mill. I said that I quite liked snowdrops, but I hadn't got any. And he said, oh, we've got carpet of Nivalis, and it turned out he'd got Floroplano, the double as well. And he said, bring a spade and some bags, he said, and come and dig some up. So along I went, dug them up, put them in the garden, and immediately became hooked. They're mostly very reliable. I lose one or two every year. But I suppose it's the wide variety of forms and shapes and textures that you get in the flowers. People turn around and say, oh, but a snowdrop is a snowdrop is a snowdrop. But it just isn't true. There is a vast range of uh, colours from virtually nearly all green right the way through to completely white. Although most people are growing them for the flowers, the leaf forms themselves, the shapes and the colours, some have got broad and glaucous leaves like the Elwesii. There are others that are bright green and shiny, the species Warrenophii. You've got some with the edges turned in like Plicatus. The Nivalis have narrow green leaves and the Regina algae have got a white stripe down the middle of them. There are many differences in snowdrops, and that's what I enjoy. They're from a wide range of habitats and countries, stretching all the way across Europe, right into the Caucasus and into Russia. But unfortunately, it's not one area that I've ever been to and seen them in the wild. Believe it or not, the one plant for which I've got a large collection, I've never been to the wild season. The one that I would actually take with me is the one that I got with a little story behind it, and that is Galanthus elwesii grumpy. And as I said in the article, being an incurable romantic. I could not find anything that I could buy for my wife's 70th birthday present, and she didn't know what she wanted, so I finished up buying her a garage door. Later on in the following spring, we went to the Snowdrop show at the RHS at Vincent Square, and she found one that she particularly liked, and we bought it, and it's called Grumpy got two little eyes and a downturned mouth, it looks positively miserable. For that reason, that is the one that I will take onto my desert island. If you're looking for the good or the best conditions for snowdrops, they naturally grow in semi-shade woodland in damp conditions where there are fairly rich organic soils. That is their natural habitat. So in our garden here, which is north-facing, it slopes quite steeply, and it's also terraced. 
and my snowdrops, a lot of them, are actually grown on the top of the terraces, the stone terraces. The reason that they're there is that being three or four feet off the ground, you can actually see them very easily indeed. And so those are probably the best areas in which to plant snowdrops. Finally, 2020 has been designated the International Year of Plant Health. The Garden magazine will be covering this vital topic extensively over the next 12 months, in fact, as we have been doing for many years now. And we're beginning this month with a four-page article on one of the biggest global threats to plants that we currently face, xylella. Its author, Gerard Clover, is the RHS's Head of Plant Health. I spoke to Gerard about the scale of the problem and what gardeners in the UK should and shouldn't do to help limit the spread of this devastating bacterial plant disease. Gerard, you are the RHS Head of Plant Health and you've written this article all about the bacterial disease Xylella fastidiosa. For anyone who's not read the article, can you tell us what is Xylella and why is it such a concern? Xylella is a bacterial plant disease that doesn't occur in the UK, but we're very concerned that it might come to the UK in the future. It's caused an awful lot of problems on the continent, infecting a very large number of plants, but in particular things like olive and Mediterranean plants like rosemary and lavender, some of the ornamental plants like polygala and oleander. And we're very concerned that it might come to the UK in the future. It's a disease that's spread by insects that we have in already in the UK, part of our native fauna. And it's certainly something that is on our radar at the moment. One of the things that struck me in the article was just the number of potential plants that it can affect. You say that it can affect maybe 560 plant species in no fewer than 72 plant families. You've mentioned some of them there, but that, that seems to be an extraordinary range of plants that this bacteria can live on or live through. Yes, xylella is an unusual disease because it does have a huge host range. And the, the known host range at the moment is 563 plant species in 72 families. It's very unusual. Most diseases maybe have one or two very closely related hosts but this disease infects a huge range of species from things like timothy grass and ivy things that we might see out in the natural environment all the way through ornamental plants like lavender and rosemary and some of the flowering cherries for example through to other tree species like oak and plain so it is a very unusual disease in that regard. So how does it behave in places where it's already established, such as in California or southern Italy? Well, in southern Italy, what we've seen is literally tens of thousands of hectares of olive groves, olive groves that have been established for hundreds of years, and then those have been infected by xylella and the plants have died. And so the, in the Italian press, they talk about this huge area of Puglia in southern Italy being desertified, essentially made into desert, just completely destroyed. In California, what we have seen really is a problem in grapevines. And it's actually there in California where the disease was first observed and really started to be characterised. In the Americas, 
It's a really a disease that affects many crop species, such as coffee and citrus and grapevines, as I've mentioned, but also some tree species in the, the native environment as well. So in Britain, how might it behave if and when do you think it definitely will land here eventually? And if it is, how do you think it will behave? Unfortunately, I think there is a, a possibility, a strong possibility that it could come to the UK. We've seen the spread of the disease on the continent. Um, there has been an isolated outbreak of the disease in Germany, for example, which has been eradicated. But we've also seen plants moving in trade that have been affected in Belgium um, very recently, olive plants that have been moved from Spain. So I think it is a question of time before we see cases in the UK. How it behaves when it comes here is the, the $64 million question. It's a very difficult one, and I think it will be a question of you know, a new environment and new vectors, new hosts. So it won't really be how we can try and predict from what we know about how it might behave in the UK. I think the other unknown is what pathway it comes through, whether it comes through ornamental plants or maybe into the natural environment and, and how it's first seen. So there are a number of different ways in which the disease could come into the country. It could come into the country, for example, through lavender plants intended for domestic gardens, or as we've seen on the continent, house plants of coffee that have been introduced into an office environment. So depending on how it came into the country and potentially how quickly we might find it, we're going to be dealing with very different situations. I have to say most of the research that's been done to date has focused on much warmer environments, for example, in Central America, South America, Southern United States, in the Mediterranean. And that's why the government has invested £5 million in the Bridget project to try and understand how the bacterium xylella might behave in a more northerly climate such as the UK. One of the things that's uh, really useful about the article is not only the information that you're sharing, but also these five key tasks or aspects that people can think about when uh, understanding xylella. Because part of the problem, isn't it, is that it's really difficult to identify what xylella is. But can you just take us through what are these five aspects that gardeners should be aware of? Absolutely. So xylella causes a, a range of symptoms, including signs such as leaf dieback, scorching, dieback of the whole plant, wilting, and in most extreme cases, plant death. But those symptoms are very similar to other factors such as frost damage, for example, um, even herbicide damage, and, and some other diseases can cause very similar symptoms. So we want to raise awareness and we want people to be aware of what symptoms that they need to be thinking about if they're concerned about Zolella. But Apart from raising awareness, it's really important that we empower people as well. So having provided that awareness, we really want to make sure that people are aware of the steps that they can take to reduce the chance of xylella coming into the country or to respond as quickly as possible should it actually arrive. So one of the key things that we would say to people is just do not bring plants back from abroad. Although it's very tempting when we go overseas to bring back a souvenir, 
we'd rather people just bring back their memories or bring back a tea towel, bring back something that <laughs> isn't going to, to harbour pests and diseases. So bring back your photos, bring back the memories, bring back the inspiration from seeing plants in a different setting, but don't bring back the plants themselves. So just to be clear, what we're not saying is stop growing lavender, but what we're saying is that actually don't go over to France and buy some or go to the continent and buy some, but actually buy it from your local nursery or garden centre where you know that it's a reputable source of them being sold. Absolutely, and with things like lavender, there is a big international trade, but we know from our own experience that perhaps those plants haven't been grown in an environment that's particularly suitable for the UK. So talk to your local nursery about which varieties of lavender would be most suitable for your garden and you'll get much better results. Just finally on the advice for gardeners, obviously be aware of the symptoms and you said you know some of the ill health that the plants can display can be mixed up or confused with the other symptoms like scorching or wilt or something. But what do people do if they think they might have it in their garden? So what we would really encourage people to do is to think about the context of the plant. Think about how long you've had that plant in your garden. Xylella symptoms can take a while to develop and they may take perhaps two or three years even. But if you've got a plant that's really well established in your garden, it's been there maybe for 10, 15 years, probably less likely to be xylella think about some of the environmental conditions if there's been a really hard frost and up until that time the plant's been very healthy but now it seems to perhaps have some scorching on the leaves probably not likely to be xylella but if it's a more recently introduced plant if you're just seeing the symptoms if you're perhaps not so sure where it's come from it's perhaps come from um, an imported plant then we would really recommend people to report it to their local plant health authorities there is a list on defra's website so we would recommend that those symptoms are reported in england and wales to the plant health seeds inspectorate and in scotland to sasa if you're not sure talk to the rhs do not send us a plant but send us pictures send us context about how the plant has been grown and we can provide advice the rhs is there to support its members and provide advice on how to deal with pests and disease problems Look, Gerard, as ever, I mean, the topics that we talk about are often quite concerning and scary, and especially if there's a thousand or so different things on the plant health risk register. But it is really important that we get this message across. And I know your work as, um, in plant health is absolutely vital to getting that message to gardeners and to members of the RHS. Thank you very much for your time and thank you very much for the article. My pleasure. Well, that's all for today's podcast. We'll be back with more conversations from the garden next month. Until then, from me, Chris Young, and all the team, goodbye. Goodbye.